Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. We felt that, that even though it wasn't the case, but it felt like the whole world was against us because at that time we was the most hated. You know, people really hated and passionately hated us, not knowing who we were, not just judging us for what they see. It was such a call for uh, justice against us. It was almost like a, a KKK rally that was people was coming against us to drag us out of our houses. It felt that way and it felt we felt so scared. And our family received death, death threats so many times. Our guest on the podcast today is Kevin Richardson. And if you don't know his story of perseverance and resilience, we're gonna shine a light on just how he overcame a wrongful conviction to become an advocate for criminal justice reform. I'll set the stage for our audience here. It's 1989, April in Manhattan Central Park. Kevin and four other teenagers who are of black and Hispanic descent were arrested and charged with a brutal rape and beating of a white woman in Central Park. The case made national headlines, racial tensions were flamed across the country, and it was heavily scrutinized in spite of a lack of forensic evidence and despite continued cries of innocence, Richardson and his fellow teenagers were coerced into confessing to these crimes and wound up serving anywhere from five to 10 years in either juvenile detention or prison. Kevin, let's start there. You're a teenager. You have to be scared out of your mind over these charges. And there really wasn't a lot of evidence from what has been reported at the time. So what was going through your mind? What are you thinking at this time? Well, this, uh, to go back to 1989, um, I was the youngest of the five, actually. I was 14 years old. Um, basically, I remember going on a, from an Easter vacation, which I was excited about that time, to spending seven years in prison. And I'm just thinking back to that day that never in my wildest dreams that I thought my, at the end of my night, I would wind up in prison, you know. Going through that whole interrogation process, I was scared to death because I never really faced police like that. I seen police in my, in my neighborhood and I witnessed stop and frisk before it was labeled stop and frisk in the eighties, you know, but I was naive to what was really going on because I didn't have any police contact. Actually, when I was young, we had a basketball tournament with the PAL, Police Athletic League. And I thought at the time that police was our allies, you know, not, all police is bad. You know, we had some that was very nice in the neighborhood, but I had an impression that the police was our allies. So going through that stage, I really thought I was in a dream that I would not wake up from. It felt like a nightmare. And when I finally awoken from it, I was facing five to 10 years in prison. How did it come to be without there being evidence without there being um, you know, any real certifiable indication that you and these other teenagers had committed this crime, how did it end up that the charges were brought up against you? Yeah, so uh, going back to that time, that night, we actually was charged with unlawful assembly and rioting in a park, supposedly. Uh, we posted a pair in family court, a desk appearance in family court. So it was like a little misdemeanor and we was going home to be with our parents. 
fast forward a couple of hours later, we was in custody already when they received a call that a woman was attacked in the park. Mind you, we was already in custody. And when you check the timelines of it, you, you can, you'll notice that it didn't make sense that we were not even present at the time that she <laughs> assaulted. So it went from that to hands-on interrogation. We supposed to be released. And then the detective said, told us, you know, they have to stay here. We have to do interrogation. We found out about a woman being assaulted. It went on for approximately three days of t- interrogation. So uh, at that point, being 14, I still didn't realize what was going on. I still thought that one, oh, okay, we'll, we'll still go home. Because we didn't do anything. You know, we were in the park. But we didn't see anything result to any woman. So not until the third day. We actually went to Central Book in New York City. Then I realized, um, I don't think this is in our favor. There's such a romantic notion of the justice system where, you know, again, it all depends on what your encounters have been with the police and with with legal authorities. But that there's this notion that everyone has a fair chance to, to clear their names and defend themselves. But in your case, you said you were kept for three days. I've read that you didn't get access to food or water. You were denied access to counsel and you couldn't communicate with your parents. I mean, you're not a full-fledged adult yet. You're 14. So how did all of those circumstances lead to you and your friends and your, your peers con- confessing to a crime that you didn't commit? Yes. Um, I mean, if, if nobody's seen when they see us, uh, I suggest you go see it. Um, that was exactly how it went in it. Oh, man. I remember the night of April 19th, 1989. Um, I heard my mother's voice inside the precinct. So I'm thinking to myself, thank God. My mother said to come get me. <laughs> to come <laughs> save me, you know. Uh, but that wasn't the case. I heard my mother's voice, but it was a whisper as time went on. We was in interrogation so long that they used the detectives, they used this good cop, bad cop routine where I heard my mother's voice and they took her away and spoke to her. And while they was doing that, they was questioning me very forcefully, I might add, very aggressively. And there was physical harm done as well, as well as emotional harm, you know. So all I know after that time, all we wanted to do, and I, I could speak for the guys as well, which is now my brothers, we just wanted for this nightmare to disappear. And it was almost like a, it was painting a picture for us and writing a story. And all we doing was adding to the script. They would paint the picture of the location in Central Park, which we didn't know. At that age, I didn't really know where the reservoir was. Uh, East Meadow, we didn't use that language at 14, you know, so when you look at our interrogations in the script, you'll see that it didn't make sense and before we know everything was over, we were already knee deep into something we didn't even do uh, physically speaking about it and when we did the videotape confession which was the last day of interrogation we already had a written script we already had our signature on it that we were somehow involved, even though we never admitted fully to attacking a jogger, we all admitted to being on the scene and trying to 
uh, stopped the attack somehow. It was just, it became a mess, the whole thing. Also in 1989, it was an election year and cops have to meet the quota, which we have to arrest a lot of people, you know, to, to you know, get a promotion. And we basically were like the scapegoats of that. And at the time, they were just happy that they found people of color. Basically, it was easy. It was an easy target because two days prior to the, the woman being attacked, the one that actually did the crime attacked another woman in the same area. And they already had the guy, but they didn't put it together because they didn't want to because it sounded better. It was more of a sexy thing to have these five um, black and brown kids in custody instead of one person. But they had the person in custody. And one of the same detectives that arrested us was on that case as well. So these are seasoned detectives for 20 years plus, and they couldn't paint the, they couldn't put those puzzle, that puzzle together. When we was in the precinct, we didn't see what was going on on the outside world. We didn't see the media. We didn't see the newspapers. We were just trapped in this bubble. We didn't know how big it got already with our faces being plastered all over the TV. And they, they basically calling minors, animals, you know, wolf packs, urban terrorists at this age. It was just too much to deal with. And at that age, I don't, I don't even know how I even survived it. I just did. You know, I, re, I acted on the fly that my mother always instilled in me that the, the truth will come out. I didn't know when it would come out, but at that age, I just had that, that driven strength in me to keep moving forward. You guys were called some of the most hated people in the city and in America, and you mentioned urban terrorism. You've got former President Donald Trump saying that you guys should be sentenced to death uh, for what your involvement in this case. And again, this is all taking place with no forensic evidence. It's just you happen to fit a, a, a prototype of what they were looking for. How did the court proceedings play out um, with, with regards to this case? Yeah, well, in the span of 1989 to 1990, to actually the, the end of 1990, we were back and forth in court quite often. And then when I, uh, I was on the second trial, myself and Corey Wise. Um, on the first trial was three other the, the guys. They lost trial. But I was still optimistic, thinking, oh, they got to get it right. On the second trial, they, they can't do this to us. I know they're going to see that we're innocent, and then they're going to release the other guys. So I was still optimistic and naive, still not realizing what's really happening. And I was forced to drop out of school at the time because I couldn't go to school because every time I walk in the hallways, actually, there were, there were people that I thought was my friends and they would say hello to me. And then when I walk away, I could hear people saying, that guy's the rapist. We know, who, you know, at a, for anybody is bad, but for a teenager, it was horrific. And it was, it was demoralizing to me. And I felt like I had to go in the, in the cave somewhere and don't come out. So I was forced to be in my house during those years where I should be enjoying going to the prom and things of that nature, enjoying being a 14, 15, and 16 year old kid. So we went to trial in 1990, uh, October 1990. And the trial lasted for two months exactly. 
during that time, I should be in school, but I was going to court every day, even on Saturdays. So it was part of my life that was forced upon me during that age. And just going through that and dodging from paparazzi, coming out the courthouse, no privacy at that age. It was I felt like I was incarcerated already. Did you feel too that the whole world was against you guys, the Central Park Five? Yeah, you know, we felt that that even though it wasn't the case, but it felt like the whole world was against us because at that time we was the most hated. You know, people really hated and passionately hated us, not knowing who we were, not just judging us for what they see. And I could see during that time that I don't blame the public, actually. You know, I blame the media at the time because it was such a call for uh, justice against us. It was almost like a, a KKK rally that was people was coming against us to drag us out of our houses. It felt that way, and it felt we felt so scared. And our family received death, death threats so many times, stating that your child deserved to be castrated. Your child deserved to be hung in a block. You know, they said that phrase that the eldest, which was Corey Wise, he deserved to be hanged while the, the, the rest of us need to be horsewhipped. And it was things that, we, you know, going back to the time where my mom, my mother, she grew up in the South in a Jim Crow era. And she used to tell me these frightening stories of how these things was happening. And it felt like history repeating itself again. So living doing that from 89 to 90, during that time, it was very frightening for a young, a young kid. Unfortunately, the evidence holds up, the, the, the coerced confession holds up, and you end up spending the bulk of your teenage years in a juvenile detention facility when, like you said, you should be going to prom and senior ball. You should be planning for your college dreams if you had those or the, the rest of your life preparing for what was in front of you. And instead, you go to these god-awful places where your, your freedoms are taken away and you're forced to serve out a sentence for a crime that you did not commit. How hard was it um, to not give up hope when you were serving in juvie and when you were serving prison time, how hard was it to cling and hold on to that fact that, you know what, at some point this is still going to write itself? Yeah. You know, um, people often ask me that question. How did you survive? How did you do it? And at the age, we didn't know anything but to fight. And it's unfortunate that I'm, I'm 46 years old. And for most of my life, for over 30 plus years, I've been fighting for justice, even when I was 14. So at the time, we just did it. We, we were just there. We had to learn how to adjust to all of it. Um, a great deal of it was my, my faith because I'm a very faithful person. And my mother always instilled in me to believe God. When I was young, I didn't, I didn't understand that because I kind of questioned God. Being in that in position because I thought, how can he do this to me? How can he do this to us and our families if he knows we're innocent? You know, not to my my later years in the 40s, season 40s now, that I realized that it was for a bigger picture, that he used us for this platform that I am in now. But at a young age, I didn't understand that I had to go through this horrific obstacles that we went through that I don't recommend on anybody because we're not supposed to be here today. And we survived this, 
this ordeal. And I think that's definitely the work of God that we was put in this position and molded since childhood to be the, uh, the people that we are today, to raise awareness, to change people's lives. So um, it was not easy. And it's still not easy to this day. You know, um, yes, I survived it, but also I'm human. And we go through these things and each one of us are dealing with therapy. Uh, PTSD is real. Like these things that happen to people happen quite often, but we were fortunate to come out of it so now we have to be the voice for the voiceless, the people that don't get the opportunity to speak. So we're carrying that torch for others. Well, thankfully, the right did find the light of day in 2002 when the real perp confessed and there was DNA evidence that led to your release in 2002. And thank goodness that that finally happened. That was way, it was wasted time. It's a wasted part of your, your youth and your life that you're not going to get back, but you clearly carried some incredibly powerful lessons with you from that time uh, in juvie and in, in prison. I've read interviews before Kevin, where you've described yourself and your central five brothers. And I want to give them a shout out here. Raymond Santana, Antron McRae, Yusef Salam, and Corey Wise. You've yeah. called the five of you guys walking miracles. Yeah. What do you mean when you refer to them as that term? Because by design, we, we, we were not supposed to be here. We, like, well, we survived. We probably would have still been in prison or underneath the prison. Because when I was in prison, there were people getting killed because of who they are. And our case was very popular in prison and all over the world. And for us to go through this and to come out literally alive is a miracle within itself. And you know, we do have these indelible scars, however, you know, that we went through. But for us to each, to, for each one of us to be here and to speak about these things 30 plus years later, 32 years later, is a miracle as well because we would have been a distant memory had, uh, at the time, Trump would have got his uh, people to follow him and call for our heads for us to get a death penalty. People would have been speaking about the Century Park Five, now exonerated five. If that, if that would have happened, they would have talked about the Century Park Five. Oh, that was a sad story about these five guys that got killed or still in prison for a crime. So I think things happen for a reason. And we will put to be as these, this walking miracle. And when I talk to, uh, which is a good friend of mine now, Ava DuVernay, the director. She's also like a sister because she understands how it is at that age. You know, she's seen things because she grew up in Compton, California, you know, and we grew up in New York City and she's only two years older than us. Sorry to say your age, Ava, but she's only about <laughs> two years older than us. Um, so she knows how it is. So um, she often said that we were prophets. And if you meet if you meet each one of us, we are very humble people. I'm a humble soul. So when she stated that, I'm like, wow, I can see what she means. That we are prophets and we were used in this position that we are now. And it just it's mind-boggling to see how long 
this journey was. And we still have a journey because we still have to fight for, for others. Well, I think one of the, the, the most noble steps that I can think of that I know you're taking is your work with the Innocence Project. Uh, we actually had an alumna of Monica Levinson who worked with Brian Banks to tell his story of being wrongly exonerated. And he had NFL dreams. He had all the talent in the world. And he's sentenced to jail time for a crime that he didn't commit. He got exonerated. He's involved in this Innocence Project. You're involved in the Innocence Project. How did the seeds for your efforts with the Innocence Project, how did that get started in prison? How did, what was the thought process that made you realize, you know what, I can be a light. I can be somebody who can impact change for people that are going through the same situations that I'm going through. Yeah. Um, shout out to Brian Banks, which is a good friend of mine now, too. Uh, we, we met a few times. Uh, he's a good guy. Um, for me, and I could speak when I... I can speak for my brothers as well, which is exonerated five, because while we were in prison, we started to study the law library while in prison. We started to find out about how these things work, you know? So we were just not sitting in prison, letting time go by and being idle. And it's another phrase. I'm always take phrases that I hear and I use it because it often is close to me. Someone said that, an idle mind is the devil's workshop. You know, so, yeah. So you can't be idle. You have to be very active and try to make a change. And after we got uh, released, I got released in 1997. We all got released different years. The Innocence Project was always there, though. Even in 89, it was closely by us. You know, it wasn't involved directly in my case, but they was there. It was always, you know, like your person that's always like your wingman. They was always there to see if things was okay. After I got released and after uh, 2002, when the exoneration started to occur, we started to work with the Innocence Project. Uh, myself, Yusuf Salam, and Raymond Santana we work uh, really uh, directly with the Innocence Project. Uh, Antoine McCray, he's pretty much in the background. Um, when we speak, we speak for all of us anyway. So I don't have to be, per se, the five of us speaking on the Innocence Project. So it was just a marriage that happened you know, very uh, easily. And when we started working with the Innocence Project, it was just normal for us to continue helping others and fight for people that's, you know, that don't have a voice. Like I said, being the voice for the voiceless. There's so many people that's incarcerated that it's ridiculous. And it's for many cases that they didn't have financial means to get out or they got caught up in something that they stuck. So when the Innocence Project, which is a nonprofit, they really fight hard to uh, making a change and I just spoke to Innocence Project this morning, actually, and I'm working on something in New Jersey about, which I reside in now, about uh, cases where police kept things under the rug. It's a lot, of, a lot of information that we don't know about, and legal counsel is not allowed to re get that information. So we're trying to pass that in New Jersey that give all of us that, give all of us that data so we can find out all the things that go on behind closed doors. Because when we were young, for those three days interrogation, there was much going on behind closed doors. 
It wasn't. It didn't come to the light. There's conservative estimates of hundreds of thousands of people that are serving prison time for crimes that they didn't commit. 30% of them are convicted with false confessions, just like the Central Park Five and our guest Kevin Richardson on, on the podcast here. Kevin, I do want to transition a little bit away. We'll, we'll never forget your story of the exonerated five, but there's a really poignant moment, um, a powerful moment with Oprah Winfrey before you and the rest of your brothers are, inter- are arrested. And she asks you about your dreams. It's the day before your arrest. You're 14 years old. What was 14-year-old Kevin Richardson's dreams like? Wow. Being 14, you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a kid of New York City. I grew up in Harlem, New York. Um, in my household, I was always involved in music. I grew up in a, in a family background that we always had music in the house. Um, Three of my sisters was actually, uh, they were in a uh, in the early '80s. They had a rap group. <laughs> they were young and they were actually uh, like the backup to uh, Curtis Blow. So uh, if you know you do your history and you Google Curtis Blow, he's a one of the pioneers of, of hip hop. Um, but that also it was also disco. It was also like jazz. Everything that was involved in my household, and then sports. So I had this music and sports in the 80s, and I grew up a big fan of the Big East, you know, and in the glory days of the Big East, you know. Uh, and, you know, I grew up in the era of, of Pearl Washington, one of my, my greatest, rest in peace, um, you know, Derek Coleman, Billy Owens, you know, the whole tribe, you know, so Sherman Douglas, the general. So um, now I'm like, it's still mind-boggling me when I when I came into campus in 2019 and I, I met Coach Beheim, um, spoke to Sherman Douglas on the phone through video, and it was just I became 14 years 14 years old again, and to to be recognized by the university to fulfill my dream at that time where um, I wanted to play the trumpet in in, in Syracuse. Uh, I didn't realize that when I spoke on the Oprah interview that I was just expressing how I feel. And when Syracuse uh, heard about it and Rachel, which is a very good friend now, um, they reached out to me. It was just, I couldn't believe it, you know? So I always was a big fan of the university from sports to the music to, to that orange and blue. Um, it was just something that was very like instilled in me since a young child. Yeah, I'm glad. And I, I definitely want to want to touch base on this. The visit in the fall of 2019, you come back to talk to alumni, you come back to talk to students, and you're talking about your experiences, both with the Central Park Five, now the Exonerated Five, and also your work in criminal justice reform. Take us a little bit more into what exactly it was like for you to walk on campus nearly three decades after that dream of you know, playing hoops and being a trumpet star for Syracuse. What was it like for you? I mean, just paint the picture for us. Wow. Wow. You know, um, (laughs) it was, it was, it was like on my bucket list, actually, you know, uh, and to have a bucket list, I'm still in my forties, but I had a bucket list. And like, just to go back to me stating in the Oprah show, uh, the special that we had when they see us now, that, I was robbed of the opportunity, you know. 
my wife and I, when we appeared, when we came to the campus uh, pre-COVID, <laughs> um, they laid out the red carpet for myself and my wife. And they had us very busy from going to uh, seeing a play, uh, man, to heaven, which was a secret. I didn't know when they had uh, uh, a special event for myself. I didn't know that when they announced that they was uh, starting the Kevin Richardson Scholarship Fund, that really took me by surprise. And if you see on the video that I, I was in tears because um, that is very near and dear to my heart that to have a scholarship, which is endowed by the way, which is official now uh, to help out people that look like me, to help out people of color that don't have the financial means to go to college or struggling to try to get to the next level and to help out people to pave the way for the next generation or generations to come. To have my daughters, I have two, and I have a daughter that's born on 13. She already told me that she's attending Syracuse. And that's like, that's all I want, you know? So that whole, those days being being at the university, man, uh, Rachel always joking me. She said, you, you're the big guy on campus, man. Like everybody can <laughs> see you, like, you're causing a ruckus out here and, and <laughs> you're all over the news and you're <laughs> doing podcasts and it was a very busy time and I wouldn't take anything. I wouldn't change anything. Man. Um, I can't wait to actually get back to campus. I'm so excited. I'm so glad, Kevin, that this was able to manifest itself. The Our Time Has Come Kevin Richardson Scholarship is aimed at supporting Black and Hispanic students who are passionate about social justice through much-needed scholarship funds. It's unbelievable. The fact that it's endowed with more than $100,000 to support this. Kevin, how surreal, you, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but just how surreal is it that your story has led to alumni opening up their pockets and wanting to back this scholarship to the point where we're over $100,000 in funding. Every day, man, it's, it's surreal. Uh, it's so surreal that at my, in my 40s, my life has, has, has begun. You know, everything is coming to full circle. You know, everything is coming to fruition. And when I received the actual award they gave me for this, it's a circle. And it just happened to be that my life has become a full circle and everything that I'm doing now, it's, a be it's beautiful. And I really want to take this time to thank everyone, sincerely thank everyone that was involved of raising money, of getting my voice out there, showing my face, people starting to see me and see the type of person I am. And I, I think when I met people in 2019 and now seeing people virtually, um, they get to see the person that I am. You know, that I'm very uh, passionate about things that I love. And now I have a new passion, you know, uh, the scholarship and being involved in the university that I dreamed of since I was a kid. To be an alumni now, to be part of Syracuse, everything else that happens from now on is just icing on the cake, you know, but we're not finished. We have to still keep on working and raise more money. The more money we raise, the more people... More, more students are able to get a scholarship and continue on with their life. So I'm, I'm ready to, um, to start working, actually. 
And again, go Google Our Time Has Come Kevin Richardson Scholarship, or you can find it at alumni.syr.edu. Make sure you support this worthwhile cause. Now, Kevin, speaking of full circle, there's something that has never happened in the 151-year history of the Cuse my proud alma mater, and soon to be your proud alma mater too, with an honorary bachelor's degree in music. That has got to be such a cool honor for you. What is it like? And what was your reaction when you heard about this? I was like, wow, what else? You're like, yeah, you're, you're killing me softly. But it's a beautiful <laughs> thing, you know? To be the first of anything is, is a big, the big thing, you know? So in the years, well, 150 years, being the first, it's beautiful that to be recognized in that manner, you know, um, to to soon be part of the club, to soon be part of the class that I wish I was at that time as a kid being part of the class. I think I would have been in the class of 95, I believe, or 96. Um, instead of that time, I was in the prison cell, you know. So from taking from that time being in the prison cell, thinking about this to actually being here physically, about to experience this whole thing is, is is God's work, you know. And I'm I'm so thankful that to everyone that they took their time out out of their busy schedules to consider me. And you're you're always gonna hear me speak like this because I am truly humble. And I know now uh, my family joke with me and oh, they said Kevin, you're a rock star now. You you know you're 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 a big guy. You. Um, you know, I have, I've been blessed to meet people, you know, people and rub shoulders with um, some pretty profound people, but I'm still humble, you know, and that's what keeps me going. And my mother, she, you know, she raised me that way to be really grateful for what, what God has done for you. And that's what I'm doing now. And that's continuing his path. And I'm, I'm working through him to help out others, to, to make a change. And by the time I leave this earth, I know one thing for sure, my name will forever be in Syracuse. My legacy will live on. That scholarship fund will, have, will always be there. And I always want my name to go on and carry on that I was one to always put others in front of myself because I want to see others okay as well. I want to see others grow. And I always want to see us learn from each other. It's a slogan I always say, each one teach one. Whatever you have, whatever knowledge you have, share that to the next person. You can add the word inspiration, Kevin, to your your title of accolades because really, you know, your your story's been documented. But I, I I'm so grateful to get to have you for this sit down here through Zoom to talk about your impact and the legacy that you're going to leave with the scholarship fund. The fact that you're going to get this honorary degree coming up here, your great work advocating for criminal justice reform. Kevin, I got to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We really appreciate your insights and sharing your story here with us. Uh, thank you so much, man. I always you know, enjoy to uh, share my story because like you said, if I can inspire one person, I think I did my job. So to inspire uh, many others is, is a blessing within itself. Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast.